Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> Hi guys, welcome to Faithful Politics. I'm really excited about this episode. Uh, today we get to talk to Professor uh, Richard Bell, and he is a professor at the University of Maryland uh, College Park. He's Associate Professor of History, and we're going to be able to talk to him today um, about some of his work on slavery in America. Um, particularly, it was inspired uh, by me from a course on the great courses. Plus, I recommend that um, to anybody. I'm not being sponsored by them. I just really enjoy it. And he has a um, he has a lecture series on their course uh, called America's Long Struggle Against Slavery. Um, Professor Bell, it's so good to have you. I guess I can call you Rick. You certainly can, Josh. Thanks for the invitation to talk to you today. At- Absolutely. I, it was really a, uh, it was really, it's really an honor. And it was, it was, I was so excited. I was like a, I was like a little kid on Christmas morning when I got that email back from you. That's very kind of you. I don't <laughs> Has anyone ever said that to you before? Uh, no, no. I wish my kids were as overjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of your kids, like, yeah, how many kids do you have? Maybe a little bit of a biography and kind of including, um, your, you know, education and kind of what led you to the University of Maryland and some of your work that you're uh, really interested in. Sure. So let's go backwards in time. So uh, I've been teaching here at the University of Maryland. I'm in my office uh, today because we're slowly going back to work here and the campus is supposed to reopen in two weeks. We'll see if it does. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've been at the University of Maryland for what, uh, 13, 14, 15 uh, years. Um, and previous uh, to that, uh, I was in graduate school at Harvard University outside Boston. And in grad school, I met the woman uh, who's now my wife. We've been married a long time now, I think uh, 13, 14 years. And she is, unlike me, um, born and raised in the United States. My wife, Monica, is from Missouri, of all places. And I clearly am not from Missouri <laughs> or from Maryland. I thought that was a Southern accent. A southern accent, that's right. This is a part of Texas you've never heard of where I'm from. Uh, but no, I'm actually British, uh, Josh. I was born and raised uh, in uh, London, pretty much, or the London area. Grew up there, did K-12 there, went to college at the University of Cambridge, and then decided to get a PhD in American history, of all things. Um, but that changed my life. I got to come live in America for a while. In fact, I've never left. Um, I got to meet this fantastic woman who's now my wife, and we have two amazing, bonkers, healthy, wonderful children, two daughters, uh, one who just turned four, whose name is Rosie, and one who's about to turn seven this weekend, whose name is Ruby, and I love them to bits. Oh, that's so awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. So you have this course on the great courses about uh, the long history against slavery, and we'll kind of get into some of uh, more talking about that. Um, or America's Long Struggle, but what kind of got you interested in this topic? Right. So it's a great question. And again, I think, you know, when I was growing up in in London, pretty much um, 20 years ago, I would never have mapped this path um, for myself and find myself teaching early American history in America, usually to Americans with an accent like mine. It's quite a daunting teaching challenge. Imagine trying to teach the American Revolution to Americans when you have this accent. It's not good. Um, because they think I'm some sort of sleeper, sleeper agent. Or <laughs> the red coats are coming. They don't ever say stuff like that. Do they? The red coats are right here. They're at the door. Um, but uh, no. In all seriousness, you know, I was. Um, I never expected this. When I went to college in the UK, I studied medieval European history. But eventually, um, I needed one more class to graduate. I needed three credits, and you know what college kids do? They go looking for whatever. 
um, three credits they can find that fit their schedule. And that's yes. what I did. And uh, I found this American history course that a professor at Cambridge was teaching. And I took it because I needed the credits. Um, but it changed my life. This professor was uh, wonderful. Her name was Betty Wood. She's recently retired. Um, and she taught uh, colonial American history. To be clear, a subject I knew nothing um, about and did so in a way that brought it alive. For her, you know, the history of America is not the, her- the history of kings and presidents and battles. It's the history of working people, of ordinary people, of um, um, uh, working class white folk, of uh, African Americans, of Native Americans, of women and men, of loyalists and patriots, of uh, enslaved people and free blacks. And so that really caught my heart and caught my mind and changed my life taking that one course. Um, wow. back. Man, I, I, I want to take that course now. <laughs> so, so consequently, Josh, you know, I decided to come to America to get a PhD studying American history. And um, if we fast forward 10, 15 years, I'm now teaching American history at the undergraduate level and to PhD students here at University of Maryland. And one of my uh, research areas has become African American history. Uh, I think, as you know, I have a new new book out called "Stolen" about um, kidnappings of free black people into slavery in the United States in the 1820s. Hmm. Um, and so that sort of research led me into African American history more broadly as a teaching focus. And I developed this uh, lecture course, which I teach here at Maryland under a different name, which is the course you heard on thegreatcourses.com as a long struggle against slavery. And I'm very proud of that course. It's been a labor of love to tell that story, the freedom struggle story, to as many people as want to hear it. I mean, I I absolutely love listening to it. And I actually, I I watch it slash listen to it slash read through, you know, the course book that comes with it. And it's absolutely fascinating to me. Um, And one of the things that was so fascinating to me, even just in the first lecture um, that I just remember from the very startup was this sense that, you know, we often think almost like this history of slavery was a history of like both it happening and it and it uh, not like both both its existence and its uh, quote unquote demise, because as you um, go on to make clear, like slavery is far from gone Mm -hmm. in our world. Um, But when I, when I listened to that, I was, I, I was struck by, Hey, you know, we often even make this like the, both the rise and demise of slavery, like almost in, in European history, almost like a white thing when, you really emphasize and elevate the level of of um, of of the of people who were enslaved, who were African, and how they revolted, and the different things that happened. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And we'll get into that, but r- real quick before we do, what? So, so I'm just kind of a, a normal Joe. I'm a I'm a pastor. I'm, you know my my education is in religion and is, is in theology. How, which, which has a lot of historical things when you're thinking about the historical Jesus and things like that, but how, how do you as a historian, how do you come to conclusions about things that happen in history? And the reason I'm asking that is because most of us, we just come to conclusions, like we just kind of assume whatever somebody says, if someone sounds smart and they have a British accent, we're, we're agreeing with what they say, right? So, so we're just like, oh, that, that, that sounds like that makes sense. How would you encourage us? Um, to kind of uh, be critical about our views and what would we look for in terms of making decisions about what happened historically and what didn't or what we should have doubts about. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight.
it's it's a, it's a tough one, and it's certainly a fair question, um, Josh. And it's not just applicable to how we know the past and understand why the American past was the way it was, or why the world now is the way it is now. It's also applicable to you know our current moment when we're being bombarded with lots of claims, and we have to sort through them, right? Yes. Um, so you know, on social media now, there's um, finally these calls um, to um, better label potentially misleading sources of information and to take mm. the course of that information. And, you know, historians are, are really sympathetic to that same agenda, that we should always go to the source um, when we're trying to figure out what happened um, and that trust has to be earned um, from people speaking about the um, past. So... You know, um, what historians do primarily is detective work. We dig around in the surviving remnants of the past, which are often textual sources. You could think of diaries, you could think of letters, you could think of business records, plantation records, um, censuses, whatever it might be that survive. Um, we root around for answers to our questions about the past in those sources. And then um, you try not to take the first answer you get from those sources as the final answer or the right answer. You seek what we call, you know, corroboration, where we start to get see the same patterns of answers in multiple sources generated by different people for different reasons. You know, there's always going to be bias in any historical source, just as there's bias in every human being talking about anything. Um, and that's true, you know, for people writing about slavery 200 years ago. It's true for people, you know, writing about anything else um, today. Um, but provided you can identify um, the author of different sources' biases, um, and you can compare those sources against other sources written by people with different biases and see where they agree and see where they disagree, then you can start to piece together um, a sense of what actually happened and what it meant to people at the time, uh, and then start to draw inferences about how we should interpret it um, today. If that sounds messy and hard, um, then that's because doing history is messy and um, uh, hard, Josh. And so, you know, we, we spend a lot of time um, reading what for many people would be dry and dusty old things, <laughs> trying to get their juice out of them, right? Trying to extract right. their essence, um, and it's uh, it's not it's not easy uh, to be sure. And so, for anyone um, out there who is interested in doing more history or in going to the root and seeing history from the perspectives of those who lived through it, rather than from the perspective of an historian like me or a modern-day commentator on TV, um, then the good news is many of the richest sources from America's past uh, have been preserved and have been uh, published, right? So um, we could take any number of examples. You could take the Declaration of Independence. Very easy to find a full-text copy of that online. And actually, go read it. Don't wait for someone to tell you what it says. Yes. Read it. And if you read the Declaration of Independence, Josh, you'll, you will remember that it's not the document you see on TV, right? Uh, it begins that way, and then things get really weird um, for about two-thirds of that document. And you can't believe you're reading a document um, uh, with so many grievances um, against uh, King George and the British Parliament. Yes. Right? It's not just the, you know, the banner um, that we sometimes see sloganized uh, today. And the same is true um, for anything else. So if you're interested in going to the sources, especially for something like this anti-slavery fight that we're talking about today, Josh, um, there are so many different places you could start, but one great place to start is Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass is uh, one of the most fascinating Americans to have ever ever lived, um, I think. One of the most reflective, insightful men to ever walk in this country. And he wrote about his life a lot. Um, he wrote three autobiographies. I've written zero autobiographies. How many have you written, Josh? Um, uh, not many. Not many, right? Between the two of us, we've probably still got close to zero in the autobiography <laughs> front. And yet Douglas wrote three. Um, and they're fascinating documents uh, detailing different parts of his life. And what you, watching him shade his own experience as his own perspective change with age and uh, his uh, rising um, status is a fascinating exercise to compare how he 
describes one event in his life when he's a 25-year-old writer, and then to read how he describes the same event in his life when he's a 60-year-old writer um, is, is like a masterclass in studying um, perspective and point of view and how they can change, even in the same person sometimes. Wow, man. that and I love that you said that because – so I'm kind of like my family will like um, – like kind of raise their noses at me at times, um, especially my wife. And she's going to get really mad at me for saying this. Um, so I'm going to blame it on you. Is that all right? I'll just blame it on you and uh, that you brought it out of me. Um, but what, one of the things that um, happens is she'll like someone will say, maybe, maybe not her, anyone, someone will say something and it's now become a joke in my family where I go, is that from a peer reviewed article or not? Right. Or, or, you know, can you show me the source of that or not? And and I get all these things coming out. And you know what's funny? Like, I've had many books um, recommended to me on understanding, um, you know, kind of the racial issues. And no one has ever recommended to me until you that I read Frederick Douglass, which is just fascinating to me because I do think of him as one of the most um, prominent uh, people that lived in that time. He was an ex-slave, correct? Correct. Absolutely. So he understood both slavery and being free and looking at those sources. Because I'm just someone that I can't, if someone tries to get me to think something without kind of showing me, you know, the original sources or something like that, I really have a hard time with that. Um, and I, I like that, but then I guess it kind of annoys some people, but that, that just, that's just part of life. Um one thing that I was really um, interested in, as we're thinking about slavery coming in and, and, and everything that happened, and of course, um, the movement um, that was sparked um, recently, the protests sparked by George Floyd and, and everything like that, I'm, I'm thinking about the history, everything that led um, up to this moment. Of course, we're, we're people in history, in time, and there's this historical causation that's led us to where we are in some sense, whatever, whatever way you, you know, whatever philosophy you put behind that, a philosophy of history, we're in this place that's come, we're in this moment that's come through a chain of events. So one question that I have from you that's interesting is as I'm thinking about slavery, which from my understanding was essentially ubiquitous within history. Um, and, we come into America and we come into the European slave trade um, that that you talk about in your in your courses. If I want to get this question out right, so what was it that both caused um, like why did slavery both rise in this and particularly for me as a pastor? Um, and you can speak from a historian's perspective on this, and that's all I expect. If you think about this Christianity that happened with Jesus Christ and who was who didn't really say anything about slavery and slavery in the Bible, we did a whole we did a whole episode of that and it's very messy and I can acknowledge that just from the mm -hmm. uh, you know it's 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 not clear cut. So, but we think about Jesus and we think about Paul who came after him and we think about the you know this European like this faith that started in the Mediterranean went to Europe spread across Europe. And now in these European, quote unquote, Christian, I'm putting in quotes just because that makes me feel better, quote unquote, Christian societies that essentially did these horrific things. And then on the other side, you have this, you have in that same milieu, as well as in the African countries, um, in the actual people who were slaves and enslaved, like slave traders, slave owners, and people who were enslaved, you have all these different um, cultures mixing together. Um, what, what in your mind, like how is it that we could have this Christian culture both produce this like horrific slave trade and um, lead to its demise? And if that makes sense, that question or whatever that sparked in your mind, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. Right, right. It does make sense, Josh. It's a huge, it's a huge question and it's an important um, question. Uh, and, and to be clear, there have been, you know, many attempts to 
answer that question. Uh, none of them definitive, none of them the last word on this. You know, scholars, uh, historians, people of faith will continue to debate this for a long time, and opinions may shift as we learn more information or our own lives change. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I would try generally to separate um, um, the faiths we're talking about, different species of Christianity, uh, from the individuals uh, concerned. And I don't know anyone's, mm. I don't know my own heart. Um, so I'm not here to uh, sit in judgment on any human being, least of all myself, or it would not go well. Sure. Because it's clear to, today, right, that people with no faith and people with lots of faith still do things which are abhorrent um, yes. uh, in, in this world we live in right now, right? Um, so that contradiction that you're pointing to, that you're alluding to in your question, is still very real and very vital and alive um, right now. And people may look back on our generation uh, decades from now and scratch their heads at the choices we make <laughs> where we uh, buy our clothes from, knowing that they come from sweatshops in uh, Vietnam or knowing that, uh, you know, um, they take a different view on meat eating or, or, or disability or whatever else it might be than many of us do, do today, right? Uh, things continue to change. History is ever living and changing. Um, but I would encourage uh, you to see... Um, Slavery in the New World, primarily through the prism of uh, economics and empire. It's not the only prism, but it's one prism. Um, and it's true that there have been species of slavery all over the world in many different contexts, in many different geographies, in many different centuries. And yet there is something specific and specifically terrible about race slavery in the New World, which marks it out as different newer and worse than hmm. species that came along uh, before it. Because there was slavery in Europe, as you know, there was slavery in Africa, there was slavery in the Indian Ocean before uh, transatlantic slavery. But the Europeans, by which I mean the British and the Portuguese and the Spanish and the Dutch um, and so on, um, expand and perfect the racialization of slavery in order to um, develop and expand a massive, unfree labor force to help them cultivate cash crops on a massive scale in the new world, right? When you think of um, 19th century cotton plantations, you're thinking of places which are several hundred acres uh, in size. When you think of Brazilian or Caribbean sugar um, plantations, uh, they're massive, almost industrial scale um, enterprises. And they're in climates where um, uh, uh, white people refuse to work. Uh, and so if you want to um, reap the profits of sugar, reap the profits of rice, of cotton, or even tobacco here in Virginia, Maryland, where we're talking today, um, Josh, uh, then uh, the easiest way for you to do that is to coerce someone to do it for you against their um, will and that central insight, uh, which comes sooner or later on the timeline, depending on which colony we're talking about and which empire uh, we're talking about, um, is seen as a key to unlocking massive economic opportunity for white people willing to coerce uh, dark-skinned people, which typically means West Africans. Uh, but there are widespread attempts to enslave Native Americans, especially in the Spanish Caribbean, um, which have a very mixed um, track records. Um, so I think uh, e the prospect of economic gain, the prospect of exploiting vulnerable people who you rip from their families and transport across an ocean where they don't speak the language um, and can't get back to their loved ones um, is fundamentally uh, the essence of European expansion uh, overseas between the 16th and 19th centuries. And as a British person, I'm completely ashamed um, by my own country's uh, pivotal contribution to developing and perfecting um, race slavery in the new world. Yeah, that, that is, um, I, I understand that sentiment. And that's what I feel like in my own heart, like, you know, growing up, I always kind of um, had this idea like, yeah, my, my, my ancestors are from the South, but they never owned slaves. You know, that was like a big thing. Like we never, they never owned slaves. Um, but 
they were still in this system, right? Part of this system. And if they could have afforded, I'm sure they would have owned, um, and they would have owned slaves. What if we're, if we're fast forwarding just a little bit, um, if we're thinking about like post reconstruction and we can jump back and forth in history here while we're talking, but if we're thinking post reconstruction and we're thinking about what happened, I was, uh, I was, um, refreshing and reading through the material in your lecture on like, uh, on, um, after the civil war and was fascinated by how the Republican party was like, not the party, but the, I mean, at the time, this Republican party was really trying to, um, you know, keep this reconstruction going. There was this huge fight or it seems like this huge tension between Andrew Johnson and Congress. Um, and, um, all these, you know, it was just an extreme like fight, just a rigorous fight, um, to get the reconstruction era going. And then we move into like, you, you make that argument that that was an exact, like that made the ground for, the civil rights movement. Could you expand a little bit on like what happened that kind of led into this in the South that led into this civil rights, um, like these, these massive Jim Crow laws and, and civil rights um, issues that kind of lead directly into where we are today. Um, yeah. So, so the caveat here, Josh, is that, as you know, my, um, my expertise is, uh, concentrated before the Civil War. My, my, you know, my latest book is about the 1820s. So I teach about the period after the Civil War, but I have to rely on a lot of other experts to teach me before I go teach students about this sort of stuff. So keep that caveat in mind. Um, but you're absolutely right that I, I think that, we think of the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s in a bit of a vacuum, as if it's responding solely to the racist atrocities of life in those two decades. And there's the implication, my sense is, that... Um, uh, there's no connection between the civil rights campaign of the 1950s and the anti-slavery campaign of the 1850s or hmm. fight for radical reconstruction that you mentioned in your question uh, right after the civil um, war. And, you know, I would argue that um, the demise of slavery as a legal institution in America, which was, as you point out, a long time coming and bitterly fought the whole way uh, in 1865 at the end of the Civil War, did not mark a clean break with racism and white supremacy in the no. country, right? It takes away the most obvious manifestation of that, the legal institution of chattel slavery, which is destroyed by the 13th Amendment in the, to the U.S. Constitution of 1865. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't legislate away racism. You can't legislate away um, uh, a sense uh, that some people have that they're better than others based on racial um, categories. And so in the shadow of the Civil War, in the aftermath of the Civil War, we see white supremacy and racism find new expressions, take on you know, new forms. Uh, I would argue that we see that most clearly in the Jim Crow era of uh, segregation, of separate but equal, of sharecropping, of the convict lease system that turns southern prisons into slave um, plantations, the uh, segregation of the uh, military up through much of the Second World uh, War, um, the activists who are justly famous for their resistance um, to racial oppression in the 1950s and 1960s, people like Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, etc. Uh, they're not just responding to one or two years of um, white supremacy. They're responding to, I think, you know, by then three centuries um, of white supremacy, which has taken different forms in different places, but has never gone away. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, the your 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 answer makes me think. You know, again, it's this tension that I feel like when, like, so last week I interviewed a friend who's a woman of color and she was saying, um, she's actually Fijian Indian. And, but she was saying, like, I was looking at these documentaries and I saw like all these white people. And I thought like, 
um, they grew up in, you know, they grew up in church. Like there was this like battle in, in church and like their pulpits, the, their preachers were, were speaking against them. Um, and, and actually not against them doing what, but speaking against African-Americans and they actually were just, they, they very likely in the South, they were culturally Christian. Um, or they were, they were in church and you see the same kind of like weird, like, and really terrible tension and hypocrisy there that you have, you know, the, these, these people that are in church on Sunday and, uh, supposedly trying to attain the ideals of Jesus Christ. And then there on Monday, they you know, are. Um, opposing the equal treatment of African Americans in in their country, and it's just an unbelievable. Um, it's just a very difficult image to to think about. It's a difficult reality to deal with, and um, I don't know if you have anything to say on that. Um, is there anything you'd want to point out when I'm when yeah. I'm talking about that? That's a smart observation, like like every other one that we you've offered in this conversation. Um, yeah, hypocrisy is. Oh, hypocrisy is a dangerous category, right? Because uh, once you tag someone else with that tag that they're a hypocrite, um, then it's only a matter of time till other people point out that uh, you too are a hypocrite, right? Um, mm. yeah. uh, so I, I, I try to be very careful about how often I use that word to describe people in the past because I know full well that people in the future will use it to describe me. Uh, in some way I can't fully understand or fathom uh, necessarily. Um, but you're right, the contradictions are huge, right? Uh, to use a non-religious example, um, I mentioned the Declaration of Independence earlier on, uh, Josh, and that's famously authored by uh, Thomas Jefferson, All Men Are Created Equal, Life, Liberty, The Pursuit of Happiness, Inalienable Rights. Um, and yet, you know, we know that not only was Jefferson uh, a slaveholder when he wrote those lines, not only um, did he have um, a massively unequal sexual relationship with one of his um, pieces of human property, Sally Hemings. Uh, but we know that when he died 50 years later, on July the 4th, 1826, that he owned more slaves then than he did in 1776 when he wrote hmm. that created equal. Um, so, you know, I, I see where those uh, charges um, come from, uh, but I'm just um, scared of, uh, I'm very trepidatious of making out ourselves to be the enlightened, um, morally <laughs> pure figures, because that's not how, how I feel walking around every day. I feel compromised and contradictory um, all the time in the choices I make. Um, but to return to um, uh, religion as a category of analysis and the uh, anti-slavery uh, fight here. Um, you and I were talking off air before we uh, pressed uh, record here, Josh. Uh, and I know that you're as keenly aware as I am that people of faith are on both sides of this historical issue. And that really shouldn't surprise us, right? That's true of pretty much uh, everyone um, that we can find. And I'm happy to go into more detail here. We can find uh, People of faith, uh, professing Christians, owning slaves in massive quantities uh, before the Civil War. Uh, and I'm happy to report we can also find uh, people of faith fighting slavery with every fiber in their being before the Civil War. It just depends on who we're looking at. Yeah, I do want to go into more detail on that because, like, there's always, like, this sense, like, oh, well, you know, so, so – it's it's clear like many times um though it'll be like well the the slave owners they had bibles and they took out like the parts of the uh, exodus that talk about the redemption of slavery and they use christianity as a as a tool to oppress which clearly happened and then you're saying at other times though people of faith were um the greatly um uh motivated by their faith to end in this, what they felt like was an evil institution. And you have that kind of, yeah, like you say, the messiness, I've heard you say the messiness of history. What, what were the kind of things that happened in like in the South? Like what were, I guess the question is what were the kind of like uh, justifications that they made to have these 
like, how do they do it? How, how did they make these justifications like that, you know, of has not their heart, but like in writing, um, like, how did they, how did they, what, what, uh, reasoning did they use to say that they could take someone and use them as property? Yeah. So, so I would, so I think the word here is justifications. I think if you are looking to justify your economic behavior and you're comfortable using Christianity as your shield uh, to do so, then you can read selectively, as you pointed out, Josh, uh, in different parts of the Testaments, um, which uh, I only have an historian's knowledge of, let's be clear. Uh, and you can, um, we know that slaveholders would point to the Ten Commandments where it says, thou shalt honor thy mother and father, and would read into that, uh, that there is a natural order of things, that there is a hierarchy, there are um, elders who should be listened to, uh, and slaveholders make themselves into the elders in that metaphor. And there are children who should do the listening. And enslaved black people of any age are the children in that metaphor. Um, we know that other uh, people drew on the idea that um, um, if missionizing, if spreading the word of God is um, a priority for all Christians in good standing, uh, that uh, enslavement is a way to hold in captivity a group of people to whom you can try to spread the word of God, whether they want to hear it um, or not. So we see that rationale that um, in, that. Um, slave owners are benevolent Christians trying to spread the word of God into a bunch of heathens, to use their term. Um, quite common. We see that in the 18th century. We see a lot of it in the early 19th century um, as well. So there are, um, if you really squint, I think, uh, justifications that can be um, derived from very selective readings of religious texts or very limited understandings of religious um, texts. Um, but at the same time, my sense is, as an historian, not a theologian, that the Bible contains multitudes, um, and that um, other people can read these same texts and find very different messages, messages of love, messages of, um, of hope and um, uh, unity, um, based around the idea that uh, you should do unto others as you yourself would wish to be uh, done by this sort of golden rule version of um, Christianity, a New Testament version of Christianity um, to uh, love thy brother as I would love oneself, etc., uh, has of course also been seen as a source of inspiration um, for anti-slavery activists at every juncture in the anti-slavery fight um, in um, in America. So we see. Um, white abolitionists um, seize on that reading of the Bible to inform their own activism. And I should point out that many uh, white anti-slavery activists tend to come from particular denominational backgrounds. I don't want to paint that too broadly, um, but we see a good number of Quakers and a good number of evangelical Baptists and Methodists uh, in the northern United States um, using their faith as part of their um, commitment to anti um uh, uh, slavery. And just as importantly, if not more importantly, we see enslaved people who have been introduced to Christianity, often by their masters, uh, take on the Bible and uh, wrestle with its lessons for themselves and see in the Bible something their masters never saw. Um, so when um, enslaved people are allowed to preach to one another, when enslaved people uh, in small numbers are able to gain literacy skills and read the Bible for themselves. Uh, they gravitate to the passages full of love um, and hope, um, the passages that their enslavers have uh, skipped over or in some cases ripped out um, of uh, their Bibles. Uh, so the Bible is um, a tool in everyone's uh, hands. Um, it just depends on whose hands it's in. Man, that is such a keen observation. I think that's so fascinating. And I just love hearing there's so much I want to talk to you about. I know we're, we're coming up to the point where we only have about 10 minutes left here. So what I wanted to do was, um, was shift a little bit to, so one of the things that hit me so hard um, was looking at this idea of um, modern um, 
modern slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk about that just for a few minutes? Um, like what, what is modern slavery? What, what, you know, we kind of tend to think it's gone. It, it was abolished. I hear that a lot. Well, slavery ended this many years, you know, that ended at the 13th amendment or whatever. What is, you know, that you make the point, which I agree, that's not true. Um, what is modern slavery? What, what's going on there? And, and maybe what can we do to be more aware of it? Thank you. Right. So, you know, for, for folks, um, uh, out, out there listening, I want to differentiate modern day slavery from um, the other manifestations of white supremacy that I've already named, right? You know, segregation, you know, housing um, discrimina- discrimination, right? Sharecropping, convict leasing, or uh, Jim Crow, all that stuff I've already mentioned. Not, not all of which is dead and buried by any stretch. Look at the world we live in now. You mentioned George Floyd um, earlier on. Um, those forms of um, pervasive racism are still very much with us. Um, but it is true that, that slavery is illegal in the United um, States. Race slavery, at least, is illegal uh, in the United States. And yet, um, Josh, uh, slavery as an economic institution is still very much alive and well. I'm not using slavery as a metaphor here. I mean it in its most literal sense. Uh, we know that around the world in In this year, 2020, the longest year in world history, by the way, 2020, (laughs) Um, we know that around the world in 2020, there are somewhere between 20 and 40 million human beings living as slaves, right? 20 million? 20 to 40 million human beings around the globe um, today living as um, Mm. slaves in various categories of unfreedom, economic exploitation, not just being paid poorly, but actually enslaved, right? Um, it's Is that more than it's ever been? Oh, yes, to be sure. At any one point more, in time? more than we're ever enslaved in the United States. The United States slave population never rose more than higher than 4 million before the Civil War, but around the world, mm. somewhere between 20 and 40. So these are massive numbers, even by historical um, perspectives. Slavery is illegal around the world. There's only one country around the world, I think, where slavery is in any way legal. Um, and slavery happens in dozens and dozens and dozens of countries illegally, but it's happening anyway. And in case that all seems very far away, uh, and it's hard to animate ourselves uh, about the plight of, uh, you know, people in parts of, you know, Laos or Vietnam or Bangladesh or, or Ecuador. Um, we should remember, too, that the number of people enslaved in Western countries like Great Britain, where I'm from, and like the United States, where I'm now a proud U.S. citizen, is also not zero. Um, you know, according to... Um, uh, some wonderful work by modern charities trying to bring slavery to an end period. The number of people who woke up this morning in the United States enslaved was about a hundred thousand people. And listeners might be asking, you know, what does slavery look like in the United States now? And you can, you can guess if you think about it, it looks like um, agricultural slavery where people, um, respond to job ads to pick produce on massive farms in Florida and California, uh, where their employers turn out to be some very shady third-party manpower suppliers to the big agro um, industries that um, supply us with our cheap peaches. And those migrant workers have their passports confiscated and are never paid and are now enslaved. Um, so agricultural slavery is a major category um, in the United States. Another major category is uh, sex slavery, that the people you can find inside those so-called massage parlors in strip malls on the side of every town and city in the country. Uh, many of them are in exactly the same situation. They've walked into the wrong job, their passport has been taken, and they're not being paid anything but in a, a mat to sleep on. Uh, for the work they have to do. And they're scared of going to the police because maybe they didn't come into the country the right way. Um, so sex slavery is a second category. And the third category is domestic slavery, that there are cooks, there are maids in homes across this country um, who aren't able to leave, um, who are actively held 
um, hostage. We see this particularly in Washington, D.C., where all the embassies are, and in New York City, where all the embassies to the United Nations are, where certain Mm. diplomats from certain countries bring in um, poor people to be their maids, then take their passports from them and do not pay them and beat them if they try to leave. Uh, I'm not repeating hearsay here. I'm repeating testimony from people who did manage to escape each of these environments, which has been collected by and Amnesty International by um, Free the Slaves, by the Polaris Project and Anti-Slavery mm. International. Uh, they are studying not the historical past. They're studying the present we live in, the country we live in. In, in some cases, slavery is very much with us still. And in some cases, it's happening under our noses or even in our name. So the anti-slavery fight is definitely something that's uh, ongoing. We all get to pick a side. Mm. That is... Um that is so heartbreaking, and um, it really does make me want to get involved in something. I mean, I'm just sitting here imagining, you know, what that's like, and and how we we need uh, that that it, that needs to change. And I don't want to jump on top of your sentence here, here, Josh. I apologize for interrupting you, um, but I did want to say. You're okay. Um, folks who do want to check out the Great Courses course about this, one of my last lectures is, you know, a five or 10 minute list of things that people who want to do something can do. And the other obvious thing is, you know, these charities that investigate, that try to shine a spotlight, that try to change policy, both in the United States, Britain, and around the world on modern human trafficking and modern day slavery, they need money. They need dollars. You can go to the websites of any organization I just named, like Polaris, Anti-Slavery International, Free the Slaves, uh, set up a recurring donation, and that's one way of really serving this um, serving this need. Man, that, thank you so much for saying that. I, there's one question I wanted to, because my co-host sent it to me. Do you Are you aware of the podcast 1619? Uh, I'm not aware of the podcast, but I am aware of the 1619 Project, yes. Okay. Is how do you, is that something that you recommend? There's been some controversy around it. I guess he was saying in conservative circles and he, I wanted to make sure I got his question. Is that something, and, and maybe you can't answer the question, but what do you think about that project? Oh, right. So the, the 1619 project is a project put out by the New York times and its journalists about a year ago uh, now, which tried to reframe American history, uh, not around 1776 and the Declaration of Independence or 1620 and the arrival of the Pilgrim Fathers in Plymouth, Massachusetts, but in around um, 1619 and what came after. 1619 is the date on which the first Africans arrived in um, what what is now the United States, uh, in Virginia, actually, not too far from uh, Jamestown, and to try to tell the story of America through the lens of slavery and through the lens of the freedom struggle against slavery and racism. And I think that that you're right, of course, Josh, there has been some criticism of that project because it is revisionist and dramatic and provocative and controversial, all of which it was designed to be. And because in a very tiny number of cases, I think the journalists uh, made some claims about history, um, which were not sufficiently evidenced. And certain commentators on certain sides of the political spectrum used those two or three uh, misstatements or exaggerations to dismiss the whole project and say it was, you know, left-wing nonsense. Um, I do not want us to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can disagree. Good people can disagree over any individual claim um, in the 1619 project. But um, to reject the claim that slavery and the fight against slavery was fundamental to the development of America uh, seems like an ostrich putting its head in the sand. Wow, that's great. And I'm in the middle of um, of, uh, listening to that right now. Um, so we have about just a, two minutes left, and I wanted to give you a chance. If there's one thing you would want to say to people of all stripes, uh, one thing you'd want them to know about like slavery, whatever comes to your mind, if there's one thing you'd want them to know and understand, um, what would that be? Oh, geez, you're making me pick one. I gave 30 lectures about this, Josh, on the great course. You did, and I'm going to ask everyone to, to, to uh, listen to this. <laughs> it's hard, though, is what I'm saying, right? Um, so in, in seriousness, number one, I would say that um, slavery was everywhere uh, in America before the revolution. 
there was no part of the 13 colonies where that slavery had not touched um, before the revolution. And before the Civil War, um, there was no enslaved person who ever consented to their enslavement, right? The uh, passion for freedom, the prospect of a sweet taste of liberty animated every black person held against their will um, probably every day of their lives. And we should never forget that. And relatedly, um, the destruction of slavery, uh, which we think of as being tied to the Civil War when it was outlawed by the 13th Amendment, would not have come about were it not for the constant opposition and resistance to enslavement by ordinary African Americans, many of whom are not named Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman, many whose names we will never know, but who all made contributions, large or small, uh, to show that their consent was never uh, given and they were enslaved against their will. Wow, that is such an appropriate way um, to bring this podcast to an end. Um, Rick, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your time and everything that you've, uh, all the insights you've given. I know that our listeners are going to appreciate this, and, and and I know I appreciate this. And and um, yeah, so thank you so much. You're quite welcome, Josh. Thanks for the wonderful conversation. Absolutely. So guys, we're going to bring this to an end here. And again, this was Professor Richard Bell. He's at the University of Maryland College Park. You can Google his name, look up his work. His new book is Stolen, and you can find that on Amazon, correct? Correct. And I will put a link to it on the podcast. And again, America's Long Struggle Against Slavery, Great Courses Plus, or in the Great Courses, we encourage you to get that uh, lecture series, that course, listen to it, 30 lectures, great. Um, it's an amazing um, uh, treatment of this subject, which is so important for all of us to know. And uh, we will have some more uh, guests on in the next few weeks and looking forward to uh, the next couple conversations, but we appreciate you guys listening. And again, we appreciate you, Professor Bell, for participating today. And I hope you guys have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Faithful Politics Podcast, a product of FHL Productions. For more information about the podcast or our hosts, please visit FaithfulPoliticsPodcast.com. There you'll find links to resources, blog posts, and information about Short Pump Community Church that Pastor Josh oversees. Also, you can keep the conversation going by looking for us on Twitter or Facebook and simply typing Faithful Politics Podcast in the search bar. Lastly, if you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and give the show a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks again, and we hope that you continue to make strong arguments, but build stronger relationships.